Hey there, I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault, and you are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize the cannabis through the stories of Gondrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I'm joined by Michael Brubeck. He's the founder of Centuria um, and author of Tipping the Scales, a really, really great read. Uh, I had the opportunity, you know, it was a quick read too, which which is, you know, great. Um, you synthesize everything really well in that book. Uh, congratulations, first of all, for actually, you know, publishing something that's, that's an incredible accomplishment. Well, thank you, Tim. Uh, before we get into that book, though, I want to talk about you, get to know you a little bit, get our listeners to get to know you a little bit. Uh, what's your background, my man? How'd you end up in this space? Uh, well, uh, started actually in 2000, 2005. Um, first walked into a dispensary owned by a friend of mine in, uh, in California. Um, by 2006, I was helping him out with his own business um, and a handful of other startups and turnarounds inside the industry, primarily retail locations. Um, and by 2007, I'd spanned the entire state. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to 2009 with the Ogden memo, which was, uh, uh when the Obama administration stated they would not use, uh, federal funds to circumvent state laws. I made the pivot out of retail and into manufacturing and cultivation. And so your first company was in, in the space that was Delta, Delta allied growers. I think technically that was number fourteen or fifteen. <laughs> uh, well, when you're when you're talking, you know, twelve years, uh, you, you get you get quite a few. Um, but I want to talk to you about Delta Allied Growers. You, you go into detail about about that company in the book, and um, you know, sort of. So so why don't you you know sort of tell the listeners the story of Delta and and how how that transitioned into Centuria. Well, in 2009, uh, as soon as the Ogden memo was released, uh, that was the starting point for where I felt there was regulatory structure in which you could have an industrial scale cultivation facility in the United States. Um, as the administration pointed out, as long as you were compliant with, with state law, then, uh, then um, you were compliant with federal policy. So uh, exited retail positions and really doubled down on a 44 acre nursery site uh, in California. And so what ultimately was, was the, what, what, what happened to that company? Well, uh, it was the opinion of, of, of myself and my attorneys that we were uh, clearly in compliance with state law. Uh, the attorney general of California, Kamala Harris came out in favor of our company, uh, but the department of justice and the DEA didn't quite feel the same way. So they sent us a cease and desist letter at the same time in 2011, that about eight, uh, governors that were passing cannabis legislation in their state, uh, were getting targeted. And. At what point did you shut that down and at what point did you transition to Centuria? Well, we shut that company down as soon as Ben Wagner, uh, who's uh, the regional attorney general in California, told me that we were probably looking at, I was looking at, you know, 20 to life in prison for uh, continuing operations. Um, I met with my advisors uh, shortly after and they said, you know, Michael, you can continue operating, but the only rule is that you cannot violate U.S. federal law. And so what we just naturally did is uh, pivoted to um, outside the U.S. and continued uh, cultivating and operating uh, where we had permits to, to do so. How would you successfully turn the 
shutting down of Delta Allied Growers into a positive? I'm really glad you asked that question because I can tell you that yeah, April of 2011, uh, that, that was hands down the worst day of my life. And, and it was also the best day of my life. It was the worst day of my life and that everything I'd worked for in my entire adult life um, was gone, um, just vanished. Uh, every plant that was grown was 35 feet underground. Um, all the personnel that I had hired were now out of a job. Um, uh, the capital I had raised uh, gone also. Um, so that, that was that was a pretty pretty uh, daunting daunting moment in my life. But it was it was hands down the best day of my life. And that without that uh, without that closure, um, if all things happened perfectly uh, over the last seven years, I'd still be stuck in that small town on 44 acres. Whereas now, you know, we're in a handful of different countries, uh, three different continents. Um, we have access to over 13,000 acres in Europe and over 100,000 acres in Canada. So much happier the way that things turned out this way. Well, and, and internationally, you know, it's, it's a far better climate than here in the United States, uh, especially right now. But I, I want to, we got to, I got to talk to you about this book, man. Um, why'd you decide to write it? And, and what's been the feedback so far? Uh, I decided to write this book because I was getting three to five phone calls every single week from friends and friends of friends that, uh, that we're having questions about, you know, PPMs, uh, private placement memorandums or, or investment decks that they were getting. Um, and every single person that called me was absolutely clueless. Um, and I kept seeing the same, the same features, um, uh, in every, every business model. And that was that there was this common assumption that the consumer market is going to remain static and the current margins are sustainable. And those are simply not true. What's the what's what was the feedback? You know, when, when you when you sat down and, and you wrote it, and then you you send it off to publishers, and, and it gets published. And you know, did did your friends all read it? You know, did you say I'm done answering your calls? Here's the book, read it, and then we'll talk. Uh, I, that's definitely something that I lead with now. Um, I think everyone that was uh, that was uh, on my list of, uh, of, of of people to talk to about cannabis investments, you know, I definitely give them some chapters to read. Um, and you know, I think the the overall feedback has been very positive from investors and very negative from people that are already operating in the industry for the most part. So. You, you, you bring up the negative. I, 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 let, let's just start. Let's get it out of the way. Let's, let's talk about some of the more unpopular opinions in this book, the, the potential monopolies and consolidation. Uh, there was one report out of Canada that, that said that you were going to see something like uh, 70% uh, consolidation in the nation uh, within uh, 10 years. Um, you know, you talk a lot about companies that, that are not that that are you know riding high on the hog now, but just just can't scale. You know, the, potentially them going out of business because they can't hit these price points. So, what's your first reaction when somebody comes to you and says, "Look, you know, this isn't what's going to happen." Who who challenges these sort of unpopular opinions? Well, my my. My first thing that I say is uh, some of these things in the book aren't predictions. You know, I'm not saying that companies are going to develop technology to uh, to manufacture cannabis for a penny a gram because my company broke that in 2016. Uh, so companies already have the technology to do it. And um, 
so I think that a lot of my economic predictions actually aren't really uh, an opinion at all, uh, popular or unpopular, but I think they're very commonsensical for people that are outside of the echo chamber of the cannabis industry. So you're already sort of seeing can of royalties making uh, some moves into California. You're, you're already starting to see these these consolidations. Uh, what are you seeing sort of on the ground as legalization starting to make its way through the legislative process? Are you seeing more consolidations uh, deals or are you seeing more companies pop up? Uh, we're actually seeing both. Uh, Canada is a great template for us to, uh, to, 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 you know, we ask ourselves what's going to happen in California or, you know, what's, what's Colorado going to be like in five years. I think we look at a federalized market like Canada, uh, that, you know, uh, the most recent RAND study came out at, you know, the potential $8.8 billion market there, um, which is roughly the size of California. Um, and it gives us a really great map on you know, where this industry is going. You have three companies that have raised um, you know, over $2.5 billion in the last 24 months. Um, and what are they doing with that money? They're not investing it in, um, in R&D as much as I'd like to see. They're actually using it to, to cannibalize smaller companies. And will we see that happen in the United States? Absolutely. As soon as uh, you know the chains are removed from you know Wall Street and the institutional investors investing directly in cannabis cultivation, manufacturing, and sales, um, I think that there is going to be a massive consolidation happening very quickly. So, in your book, you talk a lot about the importance of of research and development, and you know here in the United States. Private companies are the only ones that really can do that in legal states. You know, federally, it's it's almost impossible. And and what they do do is is ditch weed in Mississippi. So why do you think that companies aren't focusing as much on R and D? Well, the short answer to that is they don't have to. Uh, you know, you still have you know retail cannabis prices in California, Colorado, uh, even Canada astronomically high, 200, 300, $350 per ounce. Um, and so at this point, there's really no need for radical innovation. There's no, there's no pressing need to identify how to, first of all, increase your total output by 10x, you know, inside of six months. And there's no need to bring your cost down by 10x or 100x inside any, you know, n- near term uh, window. So I think that, yeah, it's just uh, inventions, the uh, mother of necessity, I believe. And in your book, you also say that that automation is king in this industry. And I mean, you're sort of proving that with with, you know, a penny a gram. I mean, that's that's an, that's an insane figure. Right. Um, but at the same time, jobs are one of the side effects of legalization. You know, many activists sort of sort of tout this as one of the reasons that we need legalization. And, and in your book, you point to providing jobs to a job-starved region. So what trends do you see in the industry with regard to jobs? What do these jobs become as automation becomes more pr- uh, prolific? I think a great example that we can look to uh, is the agricultural revolution. Uh, you had 93% of the United States working in, in some form of agriculture, and, and now you know, it's, it's below 3%. You know? And so I think if we look back at that movement happening, you know, was that a good or a bad thing for the United States? It was absolutely a great thing. Um, so what does you know, the, the cannabis revolution that we're looking at in the next five or 10 years mean you know, for this industry and for the consumer? I think it's a lot of positive things. Um, I think for the consumer, they're looking at prices going down and quality going up. 
I think it's a great thing, especially because I feel that cannabis is far too expensive right now. Um, I think for, for cannabis businesses, you're moving a lot of jobs that were currently done, maybe south of the border, maybe somewhere around British Columbia, if you know what I mean. And a lot of those jobs are not moving internally to you know taxable positions where people are getting benefits and pretty good quality of life. So um, as this market increases state by state inside the United States, um, I, I think it's very positive for the industry as a whole. So I want to touch base with you a lot more about some of the points that you make in your book. But before we do that, we got to take a break. This is the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm T.G. Brandfall. If you are looking for a job in the rapidly growing and highly competitive cannabis industry, Gontrepreneur.com is the place to look. Visit the Gontrepreneur job board today to browse current openings with cannabis companies throughout the United States, from entry-level bud tender positions to executive-level career opportunities. You can also create a profile and upload your resume to be discovered by cannabis recruiters. Visit our job board at jobs.gontrepreneur.com to create your profile today. If you are a business owner, you can post your job openings for as little as $25 on our job board to reach the largest and most engaged audience of cannabis professionals on the web. Companies who are listed in the Gontrepreneur Business Directory are eligible for free job listings. If you are already signed up, contact us today via the website or send us an email at grow at gontrepreneur.com to activate your unique coupon. Hey, welcome back to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, TG Brandfall, here with Michael Brubeck, founder of Centuria, author of Tipping the Scales, where we're, we're talking a lot about uh, your book, perhaps the boldest claim that I think that you make in the book is that 90% of investors are going to lose their cannabis industry investment. Uh, so in your opinion, where are those 10% of investments that won't fail? The number one indicator that I look for is mechanization of processes. If you look at the average acre of canopy, how many hands do you have touching your plants? If someone comes back to me and says, hey, would you like to invest in a, in a, in a one acre indoor nursery? You know, we're going to have... 200 lights and uh, we're going to have 135 employees, um, I would consider that, that likely be a failure simply due to being a top heavy organization with too much labor. Um, if someone says, well, we've developed a method of, um, you know, of aquaponics that uh, is highly automated and only requires four people an acre, that's something that I would love to get, to get more into. I think it's the companies that are doing things the old way that are very labor intensive and that are also not suitable for very large scale growth. Um, that's where the highest attrition rate is going to be. Whereas I think that people that are creating uh, enterprises that are utilizing technology used in other, other areas of agriculture or just new technology in general uh, inside this industry uh, are going to be the ones that can grow, grow rapidly and they can be the easiest companies to acquire market shares uh, as uh, interstate commerce opens up. And, and you also point out that small cottage producers, they're going to have to change their business models due to their, the, their inability to scale, the presence of larger cultivators. Um, do you see a place for craft cannabis in a mature legal cannabis market? Yeah, I think that's like, uh, you know, I think we look at craft beer, we look at wine, we see a place where you've got these huge titans uh, uh, of manufacturing that are producing extremely large volumes uh, of, of, their, uh, of their products and doing very well uh, with their market segment. And then you have very small, you know, wineries or craft brewers that are also ultra successful based on their style of manufacturing. The same thing will exist in cannabis. You will see a polarization of, I think, uh, large 
large, uh, large scale cultivation and small scale cultivation. But what small scale cultivators have to understand is that is that consumer pricing is going to be affected by those large scale cultivators. So personally, right, I'm, I'm, I'm married to terpenes. I, I mean, my oil, you know, my wax, my, my flower, that's, that's, what I go for, right? The high is almost, you know, the effect is almost secondary at this point, you know, and I've, I've been consuming for 16 years or something like that. So is, is that one of the ways that these smaller producers will be able to maintain a presence in this mature market? Well, I think you pointed out a very great fact right there. The reason that you smoke cannabis uh, is is unique to you. And a lot of people have that same reason. Um, a lot of different people have different reasons. And each each market segment will gravitate to where they find the, the most value. Um, I think that the biggest advantage of uh, small-scale cultivators or cottage cultivators is they can pivot quickly. They understand the market better than any suit in a boardroom, you know, three states away can ever understand. Um, and I think that's going to be the major advantage moving forward for the next decade. And, and you know, you mentioned a, a suit in, in, a, in a couple states away. One, so one, of the, one of the things that you talk about in your book that I thought was really cool was how this industry has the ability to pull talent from non-cannabis industries. Um, you know, can you can you tell me about your experience working with people from outside of the sector, and you know how you've made how you've built these relationships with these you know non cannabis industry types? Well, ever since two thousand nine, when I focused on manufacturing, the first person I hired was the head of the plant science department for UC Davis, which, as you know, is the largest plant science department in the United States. Um, his specialty was in ornamental horticulture. Couldn't have been a better fit. And getting that individual to sign on uh, was very, very difficult. You know, he was someone that felt that he could be shunned academically um, for his participation with the marijuana company. Whereas now, you know, there's probably monthly meetings at UC Davis about how that department is going to get involved in this industry, and all inside of you know, all inside of seven years. And what other industries are you seeing people coming from? You know, I, on the podcast, I see a lot of people coming from uh, real estate. Uh, so what, what's sort of your experience as, as a CEO? I actually see people coming from from every every industry. I see people coming from pharmaceutical. I had a great conversation with someone from Genentech last week. Um, I think uh, one of the first California permits that were issued that was issued to to Herbal Distribution, a, a distributor in California. Well, the owner of that, um, you know, Michael Baudry, he's he comes out of UNFI, which is a Fortune 500 company that he was the president of. So you have a you have a president of a company that was did $8 billion last year, creating the same business model that UNFI has, which is about 27 uh, distribution locations nationwide and 36,000 SKUs. And he, his goal for next year is to have 5,000 SKUs. And now he's gonna be operating at roughly a 6% gross margin. And how does that affect the cannabis industry in California? Every middler that he is displacing that's used to maybe a 20% or a 30% margin for driving from the Emerald Circle down to Southern California, now is getting edged out by you know, some truck drivers that have a, a centralized processing facility in, in Northern California. Well, and, and so now you're bringing up, 
sort of this this idea that that cannabis and, and you say this in the book is, is going to quote revolutionize every industry that it touches. Man, what are some of those industries like? You know, we know that Scotts is buying up uh, greenhouse and, and lighting companies, so so big business is already recognizing some of the ancillary markets that are going to be revolutionized by the cannabis industry. What do you think some of these industries are going to be? Well, I think the big ones are um, intoxicants, so tobacco. Uh, tobacco and alcohol are going to be uh, adversely affected, as we saw in as we saw in Colorado. Since we started collecting data um, uh, after legalization in 2012, um, that yeah, um, alcohol consumption you know went down uh, nominally. Um, I think if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, the moment that you reschedule cannabis from a Schedule One to a Schedule Three substance, that you're going to see an explosion of new drugs hitting the market roughly, you know, seven to 10 years later. Um, I think that every cannabis consumer is very well aware of the myriad, uh, you know, health benefits that uh, each cannabinoid has. Um, and the fact there's so many cannabinoids that haven't been isolated and even tested on the human body yet is mind blowing. So I, I got, I, I want to talk to you about another, uh, sort of, uh, big claim that you make in this book, but before we do that, we got to take a break. This is entrepreneur.com podcast. At Gontrepreneur, we have heard from dozens of cannabis business owners who have encountered the issue of canna bias, which is when a mainstream business, whether a landlord, bank, or some other provider of vital business services, refuses to do business with them simply because of their association with cannabis. We have even heard stories of businesses being unable to provide health and life insurance for their employees because the insurance providers were too afraid to work with them. We believe that this fear is totally unreasonable and that cannabis business owners deserve access to the same services and resources that other businesses are afforded, that they should be able to hire consultation to help them follow the letter of the law in their business endeavors, and that they should be able to provide employee benefits without needing to compromise on the quality of coverage they can offer. This is why we created the Gondrepreneur.com Business Service Directory, a resource for cannabis professionals to find and connect with service providers who are cannabis friendly and who are actively seeking cannabis industry clients. If you are considering hiring a business consultant, lawyer, accountant, web designer, or any other ancillary service for your business, go to Gondrepreneur.com businesses to browse hundreds of agencies, firms, and organizations who support cannabis legalization and who want to help you grow your business. With so many options to choose from in each service category, you will be able to browse company profiles and do research on multiple companies in advance so you can find the provider who is the best fit for your particular need. Our business service directory is intended to be a useful and well-maintained resource, which is why we individually vet each listing that is submitted. If you are a business service provider who wants to work with cannabis clients, you may be a good fit for our service directory. Go to gondrepreneur.com businesses to create your profile and start connecting with cannabis entrepreneurs today. Hey, welcome back to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault. I'm here with Michael Brubeck, the founder of Centuria, author of Tipping the Scales. Um, so 
In your book, you say when regulation falls, free market reigns. Uh, that statement assumes that in the U.S. it will be descheduled, not rescheduled, which would likely put it in the hands cannabis in the hands of big pharma and big ag. Even in Canada, we are seeing state control, uh, provincial control. The, the liquor board's going to be running everything from distribution to sales. In Uruguay, they only allow two products, no marketing, strict controls, fingerprints. This isn't a free market. The legal cannabis industry in the U.S isn't a free market. Canada's proposal isn't a free market. Do you think the industry will get to that free market status? And by then, won't the market already be cornered by monopolies, which again impedes the free market? I mean, I know it's a very loaded sort of thought here, but, but you know, how, how do we, how do we, you know, say that regulation falls free market reigns, but then we regulate the hell out of it? Well, I, I think I think we're we're definitely dipping a toe in the water with with regulations. You know, I think you you saw the infighting amongst canopy size in California. Um, uh, you know, in Canada, there uh, you know as 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 legalization uh, comes this summer, um, I think that's going to be one of the biggest tipping points we've probably seen in the history of this industry. Uh, with one of the major industrialized nations in the world, member of the United Nations, um, going against the single convention on narcotics and legalizing cannabis for recreational use. I think we're going to see a lot of uh, interesting business models pop up in that country. And then I think the next step that the U.S. is going to see, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with what we, what, what, what's happening in Canada, is that we should see states' rights be recognized regarding both medical and recreational cannabis. Now, the next step after that is potentially for interstate commerce and then for uh, for international uh, imports to be allowed under the Commerce Clause. And so if we're talking about that all happening in three to five years, now you have you know Canadian companies that are very well funded, that are extremely efficient and large scale, being able to export to distributors in California and Colorado and a handful of other states. Um, I think that you're going to see U.S. regulators um, uh, see that U.S. market share is getting eroded by foreign imports. And so what will that prompt the United States to do? It's my belief uh, that we'll see an opening or loosening of regulations. So you've said a couple of times, three to five years, you know, we're, we're edging into 2018. So you think that we'll see a significant policy change in the United States by 2021 to 2023? Well, I think we can look at something as simple as 280E. You know, I, I think that we're less than a year away of seeing that fall. Um, and with uh, that, to me, is an extremely significant uh, change at the federal level. You know, to get to get the IRS to uh, recognize that businesses in these legal states should be able to write off legitimate expenses uh, for operating their, their cannabis business um, is a huge first step. Uh, and so going from that to rescheduling, I think, yes, we are inside of inside of three to five years. And so one of my concerns, honestly, is with with the U.S. is that they're not going to deschedule, that they're going to reschedule. And if they reschedule, that's likely going to put cannabis in the hands of big pharma and big ag. Is there any are you concerned about that as well? Or am I just being, you know, paranoid, big government, 1984, big brothers watching us? 
Well, the biggest thing that the biggest advantage to a rescheduling of cannabis is it removes the uh, the the federal government's ability, like our attorney general right now, I think is a bit um, frightening to some people in the business, but it removes their ability to put, you know, cannabis operators are following state laws and regulations in jail for five to 20 years. Um, and I think removing that uh, is, is massive. I think removing, uh, you know, penalties, you know, for possessions uh, or for possession of cannabis uh, in general needs to be eliminated. Does it worry you as an operator, the potential of, you know, the, the, the U.S. government playing crony capitalism with this industry because, you know, they're allowing, uh, on one hand, they're allowing uh, companies to, the FDA is allowing synthesized THC products, in, uh, fast-tracking them, but on the other side, you know, they're, they're threatening crackdowns. So is there a concern from you who, who has a pretty, seems to have a pretty good, you know, finger on the pulse that the government could just play crony capitalism with this license, you know, just a bunch of their friends and not, you know, not allow, pro, you know, small producers or independent producers into this industry? I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, I think that's the one problem the federal government would have if they tried to play out that scenario. You know, can you close, you know, the 2,800 businesses in Colorado because three pharmaceutical companies now have the patent on specific, um, you know, classifications of cannabis or cannabis processing? I, I just don't ever see that happening. Do I see that pharmaceutical industries are going to have a much larger footprint um, with cannabis-based products? Absolutely. Is that a bad thing for the cannabis industry? I don't think so. Um, but I've, you know, the, the reason I've, I've, I've remained sane in the last 12, 13 years in this business is I really don't try and speculate. Um, I definitely look at, you know, very near-term uh, 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 happenings inside inside uh, the industry, both you know regionally and nationally, not just the United States but other countries, um, and then um, you know strategize accordingly for those changes that are about to occur. So with all this sort of being said, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs considering entering this space? If you currently aren't operating a business inside the cannabis space, do not try and recreate something that someone else is already doing really well. Um, you know, yeah, you may be a, an incredible chocolatier, um, but for you to go out and you know purchase, let's say, trim or a base ingredient and oil uh, from uh, from a wholesaler, and then use that ingredient in creating your chocolates. You know, if if THC or cannabinoids are sixty five percent of your product costs, you're competing against every other individual in the marketplace. And so, you know, do you have a competitive edge in that space? Absolutely not. You're playing catch up with companies that have more experience and that are better capitalized than you. So just don't do it. Um, you know, I, it's, it's uh, same thing when I hear about, you know, growers that are trying to raise six million dollars for a 10,000 square foot indoor, you know, indoor nursery in California. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's a, an absurd thing to do. You know, if you're spending money on uh, on electricity to create photosynthetic photosynthetic activity in your plants, um, you're, you're missing the bigger picture here. Um, and so, you know, focus your resources, both time and money on things that are going to be valuable in three or five years that you may not be able to be profitable inside of two or three years. Um, 
And so, you know, business models could be uh, people that start building greenhouses and collectivizing indoor nurseries to pivot into into greenhouse spaces. I think that's going to be one of the biggest areas of growth uh, for uh, for investors and business owners. And by coordinating collectivization efforts by getting ten growers or twenty growers in the same place, you know, if that pays your rent as a cultivator yourself, that's a smarter way to approach. Um, I think uh, entering as a cultivator, as a product manufacturer. That's that's really interesting. The idea is that that collectives of sorts are are your uh, are are your are, are the model that you see as as, as attractive. Um, so you know when when you when you sent me this book, you know in the front in in the front cover, you, you write, "I hope you learned something." Um, I definitely did. Uh, I, I think that you know, people who are sort of turned off by the book, as you said, are, are, are probably going to be current operators. But as somebody who covers this industry and, um, you know, I, I really appreciate the honesty that's in the book. You know, you, you, you go through your own journey as well as, um, you know, the journey of, of your companies. So where can people find out more about you or buy the book? Where, where uh, well, you can find the book on Amazon, both in paper, paperback and Kindle format. And where, where can they learn more about uh, you and Centura? Uh, you can uh, go on our website, centuriafoods.com, to learn more about myself and the company. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, you know, I, I wish that I, I, I hope you write another book, honestly, um, you know, because it's, it's very succinct. It's very well written. It's, it's an easy read. And, and I think that, you know, if people pick it up and, and they, you know, they can immerse themselves in it and, and really get some expert opinion. Well, thank you, Tim. I'm actually already starting on it, and it's actually uh, focusing on uh, historical mar- market consolidation in other industries and how they historically affected companies inside those industries and then how that correlates to the cannabis industry moving forward. Well, I reckon that uh, after you're done with that, we'll have to uh, have another conversation, huh? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. I've been your host, T.G. Brandfault. 